Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined by my friends, if you all want to say hi. Storm King here. Hey, everyone. Kagyu here. And hello, it's Aura. We are very, very <laughs> pleased. <laughs> Love the Seinfeld drop beats. We are very pleased uh, to have Aura back this week um, after a little thing last week. Um, and today's topic we is uh, Buddhism and science, which I think is a kind of perennially interesting topic. It's it's something that was the, the focus of a lot of effort and interest in the past. I don't know. It could just be my subjective perception. It seems like the um, interest has maybe died down a little bit, or or there's some kind of increasing sophistication. Uh, on the part of people who are interested in Buddhism that that there's an understanding to the effect that Buddhism and science are not necessarily coextensive in the way that had been thought in the past. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it, though, it, it may also be the case that um, <laughs> the science itself in the West, I mean, the concept of scientific knowledge is is under attack in some ways. And that's not to say that we don't have our own critiques. And I know Storm had some things he wanted to get into as far as the scientific method and the concept of inductive knowledge, which is very, very good and very well taken, and and um, I'm something I'm eager to d- discuss as well. But um, I, I I do think it probably you know now that I'm thinking about it, part of the problem is um, in a very stupid and counterproductive way, uh, the, the Western Academy has become increasingly anti-scientific, and um, so I I wonder if that isn't also part of what's what's going on. But I wanted to. Uh, I know, Aura, you had you had some some topics you wanted to hit, or like a, a sort of broad and broad outline. Did you want to say how you wanted to to do this, or? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, first of all, let me just say I think you just dropped the big bomb there right at right off the very beginning. <laughs> I hadn't considered. No, no, I hadn't considered it either. But as soon as you say that, TK, uh, that makes a lot of sense and gets uh, gets the old almonds activated a little bit. Um, so let's definitely come back to that. But just to paraphrase what you said, or to put it in my own terms, um, you know, there there, there is a, a sense in which science is under attack, you know, in the West. Um, I say that in a jokey voice, but I mean it quite seriously. And, well, I'm just going to jot that down as a note. We can come back to that because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, but what I had written before we ever, before we even started is that you know, if our topic is Buddhism and science, uh, okay, those are two two things, right, that we can separate out. But what relationship are we looking at them? What prepositions are we putting between um, Buddhism on the one hand and science on the other? And I had broken down into three ways that we could attack it, and uh, we don't have to do all three, and we can certainly do more than these. But one is just um, this relationship between Buddhist cosmology um, and things that have been recorded in some of the literature about uh, what is the nature of reality and how they relate to some of the more advanced and sophisticated takes um, from the world of, of physics, of like particle physics and astrophysics as well, I believe. Um, quant- yeah. Uh, so that that's one very interesting thing. And, and, you know, you see stuff out there like the hippie, like stoner version of this kind of stuff. Uh, which is kind of funny, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not 
interesting things to be teased out there. So that's one. Two is um, something that you see a lot, and I, I agree with you, DK, that uh, it's gotten a little bit more sophisticated lately, and I, I think that's a good thing. But it's still worth addressing this. Uh, sometimes Westerners uh, paint Buddhism as sort of the science of the mind. Um, and I I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I think it's it, it sounds kind of cringy or whatever, but I actually think it's a really good way to look at things. Uh, so like, you know, if we're, I think we're pretty critical of psychology on, on this call, on this podcast. Um, the, the idea that the, the mind can be broken down into a science is a good, uh, good concept, but psychology does it sort of unscientifically. And there's an argument to be made that Buddhism does it in a more rigorous scientific way. So that's another way we could address the question. And the third was, um, what is the Buddhist, what is the relationship of Buddhism broadly considered to Western scientific discoveries broadly considered? Um, so, you know, this is sort of the topic of like, when we talk about what's the relationship of Christianity to science and when people start talking about, well, do you believe in the theory of evolution and you're still a Christian? Similarly, you could ask similar questions about Buddhism, um, you know, especially in the life sciences, but also physics. Um, does Buddhism accept these, uh, findings? Does it reject them? Is it agnostic or whatever? So to recap one, uh, cosmology versus quantum mechanics two uh buddhism as a science of the mind and three uh the the relationship of buddhism to sort of western scientific discoveries so that's an overview i i didn't add any real content there but maybe we could use that as a branching off point well depending on where you guys want to go first i um i think it's interesting how some of the stuff from quantum theory and quantum mechanics to me has a lot of interesting interface with uh, Buddhist epistemology and Buddhist philosophy. And I was hoping if you want to start here, it's kind of starting at the end, but it's, it's one of the more fun parts. Um, maybe DK can give us a more correct layout of what the dual slit experiment is <laughs> and means. I'll give it a shot. What do you think? Sorry, you, you want to give it a shot or you want me to go? Uh, if you don't mind, would you would you explain it? Because so, I don't want to butcher it. No, it's fine. So the um, when we started probing the internal structure of atoms, um, it, the the theoretical picture became we knew we knew that there were different particles, um, and in fact we were able to figure out this was like a very famous experiment by Ernest Rutherford, um, who who figured out that atoms are mo uh, that the nucleus of the atom is very small and very dense and um, that the electron is comparatively far away so as we were were going through this there was this this sort of question okay well we, we know that there are are more fundamental constituents of atoms but but how how do that how does that work like what's up what's up with that and the the basic answer the sort of like which was based on a kind of common sense perspective was that well they're just like tiny spheres like the way that you think of um the way that you think of normal matter in your day-to-day -day life you know you think of something and then you think of breaking it in parts you think of breaking them in smaller and smaller parts uh you you it sort of intuitively makes sense based on our everyday experience that at a certain point you would get to something that was 
maybe it couldn't be broken down further, but that if you could sort of look at it with a microscope, and, and we'll get to this maybe in a second later, or this is kind of an important issue, but the idea is like intuitively, oh, if you could look at it with a microscope, it would look like a little sphere or something. And, and this was the dominant theoretical picture for a long time. Um, but at a certain point, when we this was this was essentially where quantum mechanics came out of as a um as a theory was it turns out that when 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 you start looking specifically at electrons because historically this is where where this all mostly developed um when when you're looking at an electron you like we're, we're accustomed to thinking of an electron the way we think of like a tiny soccer ball or a tiny baseball or whatever. Like it, it behaves, like, you know, like ordinary matter in or the like, sense that, sorry, yes. Like Pluto, like Pluto orbiting Like Pluto, exactly. Like it orbits the sun. Like, you know, it, it, yeah, exactly. We think of like, we, and this is where we, we, we still to this day, we talk about electron orbitals as though like electrons orbited the, the nucleus the way that the planets orbit the sun or the or moon orbits the earth or whatever. Um, the problem is that it, it just doesn't, that didn't match the experimental data. And uh, as I put it in this thread, but I'll just repeat here because, it, you know, this is, I, that'll be deleted and, and this will be a little more permanent, um, is the, uh, the atom doesn't, the, sorry, the, uh, the electron doesn't orbit in that sense because it doesn't have a definite location. Because if it did, if it orbited in that sense, because it's a charged particle, if it orbited, like if it were actually spinning around, it would generate an enormous amount of energy and, and it would either, and it would, and, and we don't see that. And so there was this like huge theoretical problem related to how do we account for the like quantity of energy that we, we know that there's a certain amount of energy involved in uh, the, the, the physics of an electron, but we don't know like sort of, we can't account for how it works. And the short answer, for how it works is basically that the um, the electron jumps from one energy level to another. It is not the case that like as as you can talk about like with a with a with a with a baseball that you know the the baseball kind of if you if you hit a baseball that it moves smoothly from one place to another in a way that you can describe in terms of differential calculus which is basically where physics as a discipline got its start with was this you know the insight simultaneously developed by Newton and Leibniz that um, you can describe the motion of bodies in, in terms of an infinite, like you get a infinitesimally small mathematical um, increments that add up to a definite finite quantity. That's the and that, yeah. yeah, that yeah. right there, that smooth movement is going to run into basically the same, the same issues that Nagarjuna points out that yes, we talked about exactly. last time with, with there, there being no point at which something can begin to move. Exactly. Um, you know, if you analyze it like in, in, in like strictly logical terms, though, it already stops making sense. Right. But, yeah, but but to re to return to the the double slit experiment. Sorry, I'm getting it, but I'm just trying to like provide a kind of general theoretical background. Yeah, no, so, go ahead. So the the problem is basically that you, when you when you observe electrons, they they actually they don't move smoothly like that. Um, they have a certain amount of energy, and then you you hit them with a certain amount of energy, and and depending upon like there's a there's a basically there's a um, there's a harsh um, discontinuity in states so like an electron has a certain amount of energy and then it you it absorbs a certain amount of energy but it stays where it is until once it's absor absorbed a certain amount of energy and that depends upon you know the the 
basically the chemical properties of the nucleus that it's orbiting, so to speak, then it'll jump to another to another orbital discontinuously. It's like the, it's like the motion is pixelated. Yeah, exactly. So so but this violated pretty much everything that we thought we knew about how the world works because the whole point was that like the whole the whole the again physics as a discipline started with the insight that you can you can describe the motion of bodies in terms of infinitesimal differences. Once you get rid of the idea that there's you can you can smoothly differentiate or integrate um, the function that describes the movement of the body, you're, you're like doing something that no longer really makes sense from a kind of typical physics, the paradigm of, of physics as it had existed up until that or, moment. Or when, common when you sense. Get, yeah, or common it, sense. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's like, okay, we're already, and there was a lot of resistance to this even at the time, especially at the time, really. Um, but the, so then there was like, okay, well, well, if, if electrons can't, if if we're if we can't really talk about electrons the way we talk about you know baseballs, then then how can we talk about them? And this is where we started developing the concept of the wave part, what's called now the wave particle duality, which is this idea that basically you know when you're talking about a particle, quote unquote, that the behavior of the particle can be described um, rigorously as though it were a wave. Now, this gets you obviously into all kinds of philosophical quandaries, which is where ultimately I would, you know, this is where kind of Buddhism comes in. And, and for a lot of people who have studied this stuff, myself included, this is sort of how we got involved in Buddhism. Because once you start talking about matter, because electrons are matter, right? Um, as, as something that is like, okay, so we're talking about something, electron is supposed to be infinitesimal. It's supposed to be irreducible. It's supposed to be, you know, there's, there's, there's other kinds of fundamental particles, but, but an electron is one of the most fundamental kinds of particles. You, you, you can't like go more basic. There's no internal structure to an electron. And it's supposed to be one of the most basic kinds of things out of which the material world is made. Okay. Well, I am, I am trying to find this electron, but actually it's distributed over some amount of space, um, the amount of space covered as though it were a wave. Now this is this is, this is a big philosophical problem, and so there were all kinds of experiments trying to figure out like, okay, well, what is you know what is it what is it what's going on with the behavior in terms of the wave, um, and so the double split double slit experiment was an attempt um, to try to figure out how do we how do we uh, how can we describe or understand the behavior of an electron in terms of it being a wave? Because that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And the 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 reason it's called a double slit is because when you have when you have two slits, and you can you can try this at home if you have you know um, some you know, in the bath even you can see like if you if you set up a wave source like a water wave source even, uh, and you and you set up like two areas two small areas for the waves to pass through, then the waves will create an interference pattern. Um, meaning that like you, you start the, if you just have a wave by itself with nothing blocking it, then it'll just be, you know, regular like valleys and crests up and down, right? If you have one slit, then it'll just create a, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll look interfered It'll, it'll look different than it did if it didn't have a block, but it'll just look a certain way. But if you have two slits just set up just right, then 
the the waves that are coming out of like cuz it's the the wave source is creating waves that are hitting both sits simultaneously right and so then all of the 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 wave is being compressed in a sense through both slits simultaneously so each the each, out of, emanating from each slit you have two different waves and if you have them set up exactly right then the waves from let's say the left slit and the waves from the right slit will interfere with each other to some in, in to some extent so that like they'll cancel each other out in a certain way and so the the uh the double slit experiment was trying to figure out okay well what what happens when you measure um the the electron because if you if you just send a single electron wave through the slit simultaneously and you just measure on the far side and you see what happens it it produces a an interference pattern um as though like you had the same as though as though like with the water you you had uh the waves on the left side interfering with the waves on the right side the the problem from a philosophical perspective or from a kind of analytic perspective or however you want to however you want to talk about it is uh when you when you release a single electron at a time uh, correct how, me if i'm wrong it wasn't it photons in the original experiment i believe it was electrons i'm not i have to okay. double check but but it, we didn't okay. have yeah it, it might it doesn't actually matter because for these purposes they believe the same they behave the same way sure. um could have been photon i don't remember but but uh in any case um the the, the problem is if you if you release a single particle at a time Right, because with the water waves, with a water wave, you're talking about a lot of particles. You're talking about like you know, it's a wave in a classical sense, which means that it's you know composed of a lot of of matter, and it's no, there's no theoretical problem with the matter. You know, you're talking about the same system. But when you release a single, you're talking about a single particle that produces an interference pattern. And it actually, I mean, strictly speaking, in terms of the experiment, experimental methodology, what they did was they released a single particle, 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 one at a time. And over time, it produced the interference pattern of two waves, uh, of, of, of like a water wave that had gone through these two slits and interfered with itself and produced this interference pattern on the other end. But the, 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 the question is, or there's this like confounding problem, is, okay, if you're releasing... A single particle at a time and each particle is only ever behaving like there's only ever a single ontological entity that's undergoing this experimental methodology at the time then how is it that you're getting this pattern that could only be produced if you had like a waterway you know if you had like a bunch of electrons or photons or whatever being released at the same time then you could talk about maybe these these things interfering with themselves but if you do it one at a time how can a yeah. single particle interfere with itself interfere with itself with itself it's, it's it's going through both i mean it's behaving as if it's going through both slits at the same time exactly which which obviously now, which blows up our couldn't, couldn't happen if it was a baseball the other right, thing right. that kind of comes to mind is when you think of it as a wave i mean like a water wave as you said it's energy being transferred through water so when you think of an electron as a wave is it should we be then be thinking it as an energy being transferred but through what exactly yeah what's what's the, the dark and, and, but this, this was yeah well this is <laughs> yes. yeah, i mean ultimately but the well this was this was the kind of a, this is a bit of a tangent but um this is another experiment this all this stuff was happening simultaneously basically the period from like 1890 to 1930 is 
endlessly fascinating. And uh, I have a quote pulled up from John. I think it was maybe let's say 1935 because I think this was 1934, maybe 27. I don't remember. Um, but this is this is like the critical period for understanding, you know, and, and we we have done a little bit since then, but almost nothing since about 1970. I mean, uh, I, I, this is like a hobby horse of mine. I don't want to beat on it too hard. But but the point is that uh, this was t toward the end of the 19th century in this roughly same time period. There was a question of like, well, as you say, well, you know, water waves need water waves are energy that exists in a medium, which is water. We, you know, what about the medium of the propagation of these kind of waves, um, because we, because we already sort of we already knew at that point that photons behaved kind of like waves under certain conditions. So there was this experiment called the Michelson-Morley experiment that was basically using primitive lasers to try to figure out like well when you move the photon source does it you know what is the effect of the medium? At this point we thought that there was a what's what we call the luminiferous ether. Um, this this the the the, the boy that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. The uh, the 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 medium through which light propagates was called the luminiferous ether and so they were like okay well there's this there has light is a wave it has to as a, as a wave it has to move through a medium so let's measure the properties of this medium and at first they thought the experiment was a failure because they couldn't they were like we, we're not red we're not like we, we can't detect anything and it turns out that that was not a failure that was the the central insight the key insight is that um there is no medium that that light and in fact all you know photons and indeed all particles um propagate in a vacuum actually that's not quite true the point certain particles part of certain particles can propagate in a vacuum you don't need a medium uh in order for for these propagations to to happen um but but in terms of like the 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 double so just to, to finish that thought it actually got even weirder because th and this is sort of the really the thing that really blew people's minds was um they were like, okay, well, if the particle is interfering with itself, then uh, how, like, we need to figure out, like, how that's happening. So well, let's set up some kind of way that we can, we can see, like, which slit the particle is emerging from. And, and what happened was, when they set up the experiment this way, the the particle no longer produced the interference pattern. The question the measurement. is why. The me yeah. measurement influenced the result. Now, we, right. we no longer, like, it, <laughs> that's kind of where the certainty ends as far as the, the modern discipline of physics is concerned. People have been arguing about how to interpret this result for the better part of 100 years now. Um you know, cards on the table. I am a dyed-in-the-wool Copenhagen guy. Um, I, 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 I think, and this is sort of what I was alluding to earlier, um, because uh, I'll, I'll explain the Copenhagen interpretation in a second. But um, more of a skull guy myself. But go on. <laughs> the <laughs> grizzly here. In 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 broad outline, and 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 it's actually a little. I mean, you could you, people. You know, there's there's like other ways to approach this, but in broad outline, there are kind of two ways that you can look at this way number one which is broadly you could say the copenhagen interpretation is the the act of measurement is irreducible in the sense that like you 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 can't there, there is no place where the particle is prior to measurement once it's measured 
like the the act of measuring essentially produces the fact that the particle exists at a certain place at a certain time of course within certain limits of the uncertainty principle and so on but that's actually kind of separate the point is that like there is no reality so to quote unquote or there is no like objective reality quote unquote or there is no like objective state of affairs in terms of the particle really was it, it had a real path from point a to point b which is the point of measurement like so in other words if, you, if you're measuring the motion of the particle from a point a to a point c and you try to get in the middle at point b and see well where is it at point b the idea which is like let's say the point b is is that that location where the double slit is when you do that the um how to say the idea that like the the, the central insight of the copenhagen interpretation and what you can call a kind of anti-realist interpretation um is that there is no like if you can hypothesize that like oh well if i had measured it at a certain point that it really would have been there and that it was really at every point along the way um and it just so happened that i happened to measure it at this certain place and at this certain and, and at this certain time and it, it just happened to be there but it, it really was at a certain place between the origin and where i measured it the copenhagen why sorry uh, and so you could ask how is this possible what kind of world could we be in where a measurement collapses a wave function like that and the only way this is feasible is is in a place where everything is empty of self-essence and dependently originated that's the only <laughs> kind of way to look at it where it makes sense right because you're there, there's no hard boundary between the consciousness doing the measuring and the so-called independent phenomena that are getting measured like the only way this information can go back and forth as if there's strictly, an empty causal relation, right? Strictly speaking, well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of where, where where we end up with this. The, the, the problem, not problem, the like where we went wrong as a, as, a, as, as, a, as a scientific community is that increasingly people don't, people don't like that. People don't like this idea that there, there was no real, it, it, it's strictly the measurement. Like when you, af, when you measure the particle, that it wasn't anywhere prior to it having been measured there. And and now that you've measured it there, that's where it is because you measured it there, but not, it's not that it was actually there before you measured it. Um, it just had a probability of being It just there. had a sort of probability, exactly. People really don't like that in, in for the past, since the end of the Second World War is is kind of where the dividing line is in a lot of ways so, on this. And so, and so, so this you, is why you have these, you go through, just to, sorry, just to, to finish, and then I'll, no, go ahead. I'm happy to, the, Basically, you, you there's this there's the other way of looking at it, um, which for sort of complicated experimental and mathematical reasons, um, like all of the data runs in the opposite direction. Like all of the like the, the the simple straightforward explanation is what we just laid out, but it is a sort of mathematical possibility or something that can for now still be kind of like in, with increasing desperation defended that like. The, the particle really was somewhere before you measured it. Like it really, it, 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 it actually did have a causal history prior to measurement. The problem is because of what all of the other things that we know about how reality is, like know with absolute certainty as far as this kind of science is concerned, um, you need to posit like some kind of very, like a lot, this is where we get, for example, the many worlds hypothesis. Like this is something, you know, uh, sometimes comes up in like science fiction. Um, I believe, uh, uh, in video games and stuff, you know, someone's like, oh, I'll just like hop quantum worlds or something. 
you, in order to say the, the short version is in order to say that the particle really had a causal history that you really could have um could have me like measured at any point and you have a real history there that you that 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 the the, the, the values of its position of momentum and so on actually existed um you need to have like an infinite branching number of universes at each moment um and and posit insane shit like this now again th at the level of pure theory it, it kind of works like i mean it works mathematically um but then it's like, okay, well, where do all these universes exist, and how do we? I mean, like, what what are you even talking about? And like, it 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 it's uh it's a very strange kind of thing, and it runs counter to the simple, straightforward explanation. But it is something that is out there, and this is, I think, what's ultimately responsible for a lot of the the sort of lack of progress that we've made. It's not the only factor, but for sure, it's one of the big ones. Is um, anti-realism in this in this sense, this idea that reality isn't as real as we seem to like to think that it is, has very much fallen out of fashion. Um, people want material reality to be real more or less the way that we experience it. And as a result, they have to like go in these very, very um, counterproductive theoretical directions. So the reason that I, I brought this up and I think it's so interesting is like with the wave particle duality of electrons and photons, you basically have like the archetypical case of something that appears to have a definite determined local uh, self-existence but is in actuality not that way at all and is more like a a distributed has a distributed existence interwoven in this web of dependencies right so the 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 uh the self-essence would be in this case the particle and you know that is like the superficial phenomenological reality where we experience objects and causality that seem like they have a self-essence and a boundary or whatever, right? But then the reality underneath it is analogous to um, the emptiness and dependent origination of it, right? So you have the particle, which seems like a self-existent object, but the reality is the wave, which is its emptiness. So to me, this is like the archetypical case of, of essentially emptiness being true. It's it's the, the only real kind of ironclad workable way to think about this reality. And, and I would further say, that because um, because the electrons are this way and this is what we're composed of, I don't think, I mean, I don't know how you get to a person having a self-essence when they're composed entirely of divisible uh, things that have a wave particle duality. Yeah, like, well, that, that's one of the big, you know, um, under, under uh, mis like, um, how to say, we don't really appreciate, I think, necessarily how revolutionary atomic physics leaving aside like quantum physics and the whole kind of just the idea that there are atoms Th this was a huge source of debate for thousands even, of years e even before we get to quantum mechanics when you talk about like uh the atomic uh structure of something like a table we one of the most mind-blowing things again even before the discovery of of quantum theory or the invention of quantum theory uh is the incredible space between each individual atom, right? Like, uh, if you can imagine, even though this isn't necessarily the way things are, if, if you can imagine the nuclei as like a little cluster of baseballs or something, I don't know the exact measurement or whatever, but you could you could picture that the next cluster of baseballs actually, think, is think, like, think of a tennis ball in the center of a sports stadium. That's like yeah. the, the nucleus in relation to that's that's the or, that's the like the order of magnitude of a nucleus in relation to quote unquote an atom. 
Right. And it that's mind blowing enough, you know. In literal crude <laughs> sense, everything is empty on like a very fundamental yes. level. Yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean and and that taken in in the same that combined with uh with quantum tunneling means if you were to run full speed at a wall, there's a non zero possibility that right. you just pass through that's it. That's exa that's exactly right. And there's a famous story, you know, about um I believe it was Gampopa, uh, one of the Tibetan masters. I mean, this other, I mean, this is not at all uncommon. But like, so, someone was uh, was debate, you know, saying like, talking about emptiness. They were debating emptiness in the you know the Buddhist concept of emptiness, and um, was trying to like you know prove his intellectual superiority to Gampopa and saying like you know they're you know we're, we're, emptiness is like this, so it's like that. And Gampopa is like, no, 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 emptiness is like this, and he just moved his hand through a solid pillar. <laughs> based so i got i got something else real quick and and uh, this is another th way where like some of the things from buddhist epistemology and philosophy kind of ended up being a a mirror to the stuff from quantum mechanics so there's this measurement problem right that we talked about earlier where it appears superficially as if the measurement creates the reality which is kind of a backwards causality right and i think this is essentially the same as the hard limit of language that you get from reading the um, the fundamental verse of the middle way that Nagarjuna talks about, right? You've got this hard limit on language, not really being able to escape being limited to only making conventional statements. That to me is a mirror to this difficulty in making a definite measurement of these particles that have the wave particle duality. It's it's the same thing. Like we find, we find all the stuff, um, some of the major points in Buddhist philosophy kind of show their heads in this particle physics. And I think that's very edifying for the tradition as a whole. Well, what one thing that those two things have in common is the idea that our ideas of reality um, are based on conventions, right? And we have a, a conventional understanding that, uh, you know, even somebody who's never heard of quantum mechanics understands like, yeah, I know that my body's made up of cells, but I, I can't see them. So I have to operate, you know, as a, as a whole being, right? But I know the cells are there. And then below that, you're like, well, I know the cells are made up of molecules, but conventionally, let's just talk about them as cells. And, and on down it goes, right? Down to the atoms and then to the subatomic particles. And then as we learn from quantum theory, it's like even those are, that's just a, you know, when we, like DK was saying at the very top, talking about electrons having orbits, that's just a convention that we use so that we can talk about it. But that's not actually, they're not actually orbiting, right? Same thing with language. You know, we use words to describe something and it's an imprecise uh, uh, description of something. It's just a conventional understanding. And the insight of Buddhism is that our senses of selves, our sense of our own uh, desires and our own uh, you know, like mental hangups and whatever it might be, those are conventional things. And just like all these other conventions, if you look closely enough at them, you find that they're just conventions. They're not actually real in and of themselves. And I mean, even could you say like the with the idea of a wave particle duality that it's really neither. It's just that this is kind of a question of how you want to mathematically model them. And that depends on the situation you find yourself in. So... In a sense, the, you're actually being bound by the conventions and concepts of Newtonian mechanics, just as like a limitation of understanding here. DK, I feel like you had more to say on your piece, but we cut you off. No, it's it's fine. Um, yeah, I also. I, oh, it's. I, a, yeah. 
be, just because at some point we had to start talking in bigger generalities, right? Because yes, the science the science we it, we, it would take us six hours or something to, to to do proper justice to it. I think. Yeah. Um... The, the exactly and we were already kind of like going on for a bit the i guess the 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 really key point is um it's it's necessary to understand that well i guess before even getting back to that um on the particle question the pq so to speak there are <laughs> there, there are two main takeaways that i think are important number one um that the Buddhist analysis of no self proceeds from atomic theory. So in India, 2,500 years ago, as up until very recently, this was an actively debated question. The Buddhist answer was that reality is divisible into irreducible units, irreducible phenomenological units, actually called dharmas. It's one of the sort of central uses of the word dharma in Buddhism. Um which are basically there's mental and physical dharmas. Um, and so when you're talking about a, a being, a sentient being, you're talking about something that is analyzable into a lot of physical particles, for lack of a better word, or particulars, and um, mental particles, so to speak. Um, and the... The idea that we have kind of intuitively, and this is one of the central Buddhist insights, is that, you know, we, the, the idea that we have is when we, uh, we can refer to ourselves, like, I, okay, I, I am made up of a lot, like, like, broadly, you know, there's other stuff in there, but broadly, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, right? These are like the kind of, I don't know, some 90% plus of the matter in my body is, is, is these elements in various combinations. Okay. Um, the idea that, that we, we can like integrate all of this stuff and we're going to call that, we're going to designate, you know, me on the basis of all of those particles in a sense, in terms of just like language or kind of, you know, ordinary usage of words, it's not necessarily a problem. But when you're talking about the nature of reality, when you're talking about how things truly are at the most fundamental level, you can point, in a sense, at those particles. You can point and you can say, like, well, there, you know, I have, there's like however many billions of, of carbon atoms, right, in, the, in my body. But the idea that there's a fundamental difference between the existence of the carbon atom, which we can at least, in a, you know, from a certain perspective, point to and say, like, that is a carbon atom, versus, like, the idea that there is me. Because there is no me, really, in its sort of, sort of scientific level, over and above the particles. Now, in a Buddhist sense, and I would defend this, you would have to include, um, you know, cognitive processes, mind and mental factors, chitta chaita, as similarly irreducible because we're not purely physical. There's also, there's also a continuum of mind. Um, but, but the point is the same really in either case. Even from a sort of physicalist, materialist perspective, you could say, or you have to say, you have to acknowledge that 
when you're talking about like me or a being, you're just talking about something that is designated to exist. It is merely a designation that we use to refer to a group of things. The group has no independent ontological existence. It is purely reducible to its constituents, full stop, as opposed to those constituents themselves, which are fundamental, irreducible, and as such are really truly existent, at least in a way that the designation or the group isn't. Does that make sense? Am I making am I making sense so it, far? It does, but I think even in that situation, there are questions to be asked about the verifiability that the the small constituents are in fact irreducible. I think, right. I think you have yes. to... Yes. That's even, the rub, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where the quantum mechanical... That, from, from a kind of contemporary scientific perspective, that is where the issue of epistemology in relation to quantum physics comes in from a buddhist perspective this is where obviously nagarjuna comes in and we're, we're uh you know in in the weeks subsequent we're going to be discussing um nagarjuna's magnum opus the mula madhyamaka karika or the 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 verses that are the root of the middle way um and and you know because nagarjuna really this is right off the bat he gets into this issue um which was so so sort of again historically Buddhism going all the way back to the time of the Buddha, it you know the Buddha basically himself taught that reality is composed of irreducible particles. Um, that if you want to look at it, if you if you want to get at a description of how things really are, that there are these indivis in, indivisible constituents um, at the most fundamental level. And now, what he actually meant by this and how far you want to push this is, you know, open to debate. And certainly from a Mahayana perspective, um, that, you know, this, this is um, at best only part of the story. And this is really where, where Nagarjuna's analysis takes off, is in, is in the analysis of, like, well, when you're talking about a particle, what are you really talking about? When you're talking about a particle interacting with another particle, like, what is, what are you actually talking about? Um this is this is a very important point and, and and we'll return to it um but but just in terms of like this kind of the second big picture takeaway is is precisely from a kind of contemporary perspective but also i, I mean it very neatly dovetails with the kind of buddhist epistemological perspective when you're looking at just one particle um again the 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 the, the key insight of the of the so-called copenhagen interpretation um, that that was you know very popular in the first part of the twentieth century and and has become increasingly people trying to figure out some way to like escape the kind of inevitable conclusion that reality isn't as real as we like to think it um, is is that you can't get um, outside of the question of subjectivity and I I just if if it's okay um, I wanted to to read a bit. This is from let me let me make sure that I have the the date right. This is uh, from the Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics by John von Neumann, which uh, was first published I think in 1927. I sure I had this because the edition I'm doing is this is an English translation from the 50s. Um, von Neumann says. Let us now compare these circumstances with those which actually exist in nature or in its observation. First, it is inherently entirely correct that the measurement or the related process of the subjective perception is a new entity relative to the physical environment and is not reducible to the latter. Indeed, 
Subjective perception leads us into the intellectual inner life of the individual, which is extra observational by its very nature, since it must be taken for granted by any conceivable observation or experiment. Nevertheless, it is a fundamental requirement of the scientific viewpoint, the so-called principle of the psychophysical parallelism, that it must be possible to describe the extraphysical process of the subjective perception as if it were in reality in the physical world, i.e. to assign to its parts equivalent physical processes in the objective environment in ordinary space. In a simple example, these concepts might be applied about as follows. We wish to measure a temperature. If we want, we can pursue this process numerically until we have the temperature of the environment of the mercury container of the thermometer and then say, this temperature is measured by the thermometer. But we can carry the calculation further. And from the properties of the mercury, which can be explained in kinetic and molecular terms, we can calculate its heating, expansion, and the resultant length of the mercury column, and then say, this length is seen by the observer. Going still further, and taking the light source into consideration, we could find out the reflection of the light quanta on the opaque mercury column, and the path of the remaining light quanta into the eye of the observer, their refraction in the eye lens, and the formation of an image on the retina. And then we would say, this image is registered by the retina of the observer. And were our physiological knowledge more precise than it is today, we could go still further, tracing the chemical reactions which produce the impression of this image on the retina, in the optic nerve tract, and in the brain, and then in the end say, these chemical changes of his brain cells are perceived by the observer. But in any case, no matter how far we calculate, to the mercury vessel, to the scale of the thermometer, to the retina, or into the brain, at some time we must say, and this is perceived by the observer. That is, we must always divide the world into two parts, the one being the observed system, the other the observer. And, and this is like, again, this is something that, I mean, Niels Bohr was, was big into this, and this is something, that, that's the end of the quote for now. Um, this is something that, that, that the early... You know, John von Neumann is like, I mean, you could, you could just talk for, I mean, he was an incredible genius, you know, he's father of computer science, one of the architects of the Manhattan Project, uh, obviously a very enormously influential math, uh, mathematical physicist, which is say quantum physicist in his own right. Um, in addition to all his other contributions, Niels Bohr, I don't think needs any further, um, you know, Enrico Fermi and, and these guys were, were all very well aware of this 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 is this is what motivated i i just i need to emphasize this is what 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 motivated scientists in the early in the first half of the 20th century really through the end of the second world war was a, a, a an understanding of the irreducibly of the fact that cognition is ir is you you can't escape the question of cognition that there is there is no outside of cognition and now um i i would say from a kind of more you know that there's uh there's more to the story as far as like subjectivity we we, we need to probe like well what yes. what exactly is this subjectivity and 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 from a buddhist perspective this is i think where sort of buddhism can can maybe restart some of this process or, or we can say like yeah okay, well, we, uh, all right please continue i've been talking to yeah I, well, well, I i storm if i may yeah, i I want to take a step back and just make a sort of simple but bold statement. When I 
practice Buddhism and when I can call myself a Buddhist or whatever, um, I, I am not on, on one on the one hand, I am like categorizing myself in the, the system of the world's religions and the big major world religions as we understand. them. Sure. But that's a convention. What I'm really saying is that I am after <laughs> truth, I suppose, um, and that I don't expect there to be at, at the level of like complete and total understanding, if I could ever achieve that, I expect that there's going to be no gap between physics, like Western physics, uh, if it ever perfects itself, right, uh, and Buddhist understanding of the world. And I know that sounds very simple, but I feel like it it needs to be said because we tend to, um, in modern times, in the West at least, but probably I think this is a, a pretty, a pretty you know, somewhat universal phenomenon to a degree. We, we tend to think, okay, well, there's, um, there's physical stuff on the one hand, and then there's, uh, there's like, uh, philosophical stuff on the other hand. And I think what you're getting at when you talk about um, von Neumann, and you talk about Fermi and Bohr and these guys, the discoveries that they're making and the kinds of minds that they had, um, is that they understood, e even if they couldn't, quite reached the total conclusion of everything quite yet uh they were very smart and they were very wise and they understood that when you're talking about um perception and you're talking about physics and you're talking about subatomic particles there you're it's all within the same system that's what that neumann von neumann quote uh is getting at right is that there's it's not philosophy or physics uh, to talk about these things. It's the same thing. It's the same system. And another way to break down this, you know, this, uh, th th this way that von Neumann was putting it is that everybody knows that, or at least <laughs> thinking people know that uh, biology can be described as complicated chemistry, right? And chemistry can be described as complicated physics, right? Uh, and then physics is <laughs> kind of the master science in a certain sense, because we're not quite sure what that describes, but yeah, well, this is, you know, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, people will say like the, the, the fundamental problem, another way of thinking about the fundamental problem and why we, there hasn't been progress on these really most important questions is because people have been treating physics as though it's just complicated math. And, right. and that's wrong. Like math is purely conceptual and physics is at least if, if physics is, is, purely conceptual and no longer grounded in experimentation and empirical repeatable um, issues, then then it's some it's something else. So as so I just wanted to throw that out there, but please continue. Yeah, and you know, we've been bold enough on this show, and, I, and I'll, I'll wrap this up just a second, I promise, but we've been bold enough on this show to say that we should listen to what the Buddha and the ancient masters and contemporary masters have to say on social issues and um, uh, you know, like political issues and things like that, and that maybe they know better than our dumb coughs, uh, <laughs> our post-structuralist theorists and our, you know, Marxist theorists or whatever. That, like, probably the Buddha understood these things better and that when, when in doubt, we should take his word for it. I believe the same thing. Now, it's interesting the point you bring up, uh, the difference between things that are described at the time of the Buddha and the way that Nagarjuna comes in. That's an interesting question. I'd love to get into it. But if we could for the sake of discussion, sort of lump them into one group as like highly enlightened masters that we ought to listen to. My point is, is that like when they're describing reality, the, 
again, it's not that like, oh, these ancient people kind of had some interesting ideas. Like uh, my assertion here is that they actually saw it and they actually understood it and they know things that the phys- that the quantum uh, mechanics guys are just figuring out in the last hundred years or so. And I'm not just saying like, oh, they guessed right. I was like, no, they actually saw it, knew it and understood it. Uh, that's my bold assertion for this for this week. <laughs> I think one of the main like takeaways here that and, and essentially what's different, what's what makes these people um, kind of better than their counterparts who are suffering from that mind body dualism is they're taking a holistic view of the universe like that. You can't if you want to find out the truth, you can't start with these assumptions. You have you have to begin sort of from like the base phenomenological awareness you have to you're essentially starting from the tathata you need to start from the suchness and then build out of that and that's a totally there was a totally new wave right in science and so you know and another thing they understood about you know they had perception abstracted out of the system as some sort of uh, perceiving caricature but it's not it's embedded within it and they and they kind of discovered this is an epistemological problem. Like, I don't know if uh, it's been talked about a lot, like academically, but I've always brought it up. And it's that, you know, basically all the information you're getting is coming through the sense faculties. And they're coming into your mind to be knowable through the sense faculties. And even your thoughts, things that happen in your mind, those are perceived as well. I mean, it's not traditionally thought of in the West as a sense, the sense that perceives thought, but it, it is one. And so... It, we can't use that process of perception to validate itself because any problems that it has in the initial perception of something, say the interaction of two particles, it also has in, in attempting to try and verify itself. Essentially, you would need to be able to step completely out of the process of your perception and verify that it was correct. You need to see yourself, you need to see the seeing, and you need to see the scene and make sure they were all right. But even if you could do that, you would need another outside perception to make sure that that perception check was also right. So you end up with an infinite regress of needing to be assured and it, you don't have that. So we have to operate from this, this Heideggerian state of thrownness where the essential context we're in is of the ultimate unknowability. The you know language is like a fractional reserve system in that anytime anything is said, there's more debt generated than information gained. <laughs> That's, and that's I have a I have a lot to, to say. I mean, but this gets sort of almost. Gets please more go ahead. Please comment. So do I. But I you was jumping yeah, in. Yeah, go ahead. You go. No, actually, I mean, like, because you're saying it's it, you, not only are you limited by cognition by like just the the limitation of the sense faculty. When you're trying to confirm that, you're then being limited by the faculty of language, and so then you're in, at the problem of well are the conception are, are the concepts that i'm referring to with these particular words exact are be, are they being captured the same way by this other observer who notionally may be confirming what i'm saying but again that's not really something you can be absolutely sure about it's i mean it's the the presence of unknown the presence of the possibility of unknown unknowns puts you in that Heideggerian state of thrownness where the, the, you know, the context is, is uncertainty, in my opinion. And that's kind of what, that's the underlying truth about the structure of things that makes uh, conventionality the limited language. And when you bring that into science, like I was saying earlier, you totally revolutionize the whole thing. Or the difference. Yeah, please. The difference, I think, um, with the Buddha, um, 
is that, and again, I, I, I'm worried that I'm being too simplistic here, but whatever, um, is that I, I think that other people have perceived this problem in other contexts, right? I think the ancient Greeks had addressed some of this at some points, like even, you know, uh, who is it, Dharmakirti? Is, uh, Zeno's Sextus Empiricus. And Zeno, yeah. Zeno was the one who did the, the, the paradox of the of the infinite Achilles presence. running the race. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, you know, that's not the same exact question, but it's, it's pointing towards similar things and calculus itself is pointing is sort of a solution to that problem. Right. Um, and you can see it in, um, pre Buddhist, uh, Vedic thought, uh, in India. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the, you know, it's not, and again, the quantum mechanic, uh, quantum mechanics guys are, are looking at some of the Again, I'm speaking very broadly. Same sort of questions. This came clearly into my mind when Storm was just talking about the fact that you you know there's this infinite regress and like where does it end? The bold assertion, to use that term again, of the Buddha is that there is an end to it and it can be reached. And in fact, I reached it, and you can too. And that's the exciting part, right? That's the that that's that's where this intellectual discussion stops being like just uh, you know you know dorm room talk and it starts talking about okay well what are we going to do about this and the whole system of buddhism as laid out by the buddha is is a again it's a system to deal with this sort of the fundamental nature of reality and that um and how to exist in it yeah i mean the message of the buddha is kind of that that whole quest that involves discovering that infinite regress is you're, you know, it's like using a screwdriver to try and hammer in a nail. You're, it's not what you do. You, the, the end of the regress is to never have the regress at all. It's to go back to the beginning, see into your self nature. So, I guess, so with the Buddha, the advantage oh. would be not only that, but, but going beyond like the conceptual prison of the mathematics that's being used to, to describe all of his physics, which yes, an enlightened being is not going to be tied to in the same way. That's exactly right, and and getting to um, that that's uh, okay. So you know my my Twitter handle for now um, is Yogachara Supremacist, which is kind of tongue in cheek in various ways and haha. But the, the 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 question, one question or one kind of important thing to understand is you know, what is Yogachara? Well, Yogachara is a kind of it's a historical. Um, intellectual tradition among other things in in indian buddhism that existed at a certain place in time okay but yogacara means yogic practice and what yogacara philosophers um were getting at was sort of sometimes yogacara is called mind only um which is you know sometimes people mean this as a pejorative or something derogatory um Sometimes it's a kind of neutral description. It is a fairly accurate description in certain ways. Um, and then this gets argued about, like, well, what does it mean to say that mind only, that everything is only mind, right? All phenomena or all, all of existence is only mind. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. But what, arguably the key insight or sort of the, the thing where Yogacara, it, it doesn't end here, but it begins with the understanding that when you're talking about observing something, measuring something, seeing something, having a cognition of something, 
in precisely the way that Storm was talking about. What is it that you're seeing? Because you're not seeing, I mean, except in an indirect sense, you're not seeing atoms. You could say, well, okay, I'm seeing an effect that's produced by atoms. Atoms don't look yellow. I mean, yeah, the concept of yellow is already, you know, wrapped up in, like, how our brains or minds or however you want to look at it um, interprets a certain kind of causal stimulus. So when you're looking at, like, a, you know, a table or a chair or whatever, you're not seeing the atoms, unless you're a very, very advanced yogi. Um, you're not seeing the atoms. You're seeing the effect that the atoms produce. Well, what is that effect? Because you're not even seeing, like, the direct effect. What you're seeing, or, or if you are, to the extent that you're seeing a direct effect, what you're seeing is a cognitive image or form or mental representation, some, some, somehow the, the atoms or the, 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 the causal interaction between the atoms and the light is causing the light that reaches your retina. This is sort of part of what, what, what von Neumann was getting at in that quote I selected. It, it's causing, the, the, the light is hitting your retina in a certain way that it's causing a chemical change that is producing a mental image that looks a certain way. So you're not even actually seeing the light, right? In a, in, a, in a very real, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, you're not, you're never, you don't, you don't even really see photons because what you, what you see, quote unquote, is the effect that the photons that hit your retina produce in your mind. And that's all that you ever see or hear or touch or whatever is there, there is an effect that is produced by the causal contact, that effect that is produced is a certain kind of cognition, a sensory cognition of, of that you know has certain phenomenal characteristics. But the point is that all you ever have direct epistemic access to is cognition. Now, some you know some people sort of stop here, or they want to stop here, or they want to draw some kind of line um, between like, okay, well. Just because all you ever have direct epistemic access to, all that you ever strictly directly perceive is cognition in some form or another, that doesn't necessarily mean that all phenomena are mental in whatever sense, however you want to say mental. That's but but basically arguable. What, like <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Arguable. At that point, it's like, what yeah, do you it's mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's certainly. Well, I mean, there's other kind of you know Vasubandhu. We can maybe we can like maybe another time it would be nice to read some Vasubandhu, um, the twenty verses or the thirty well, verses. I, but the yeah, because there are like sort of arguments or proofs to the effect that like yeah, even even that. But like, you were on a train. I cut you off. Man. No, no, no. I, it's you, fine. You were, it's, I think you, you did. You, you were you were right. To, I mean, of course, like it's a kind of a silly objection. Um, but it you know it is an objection that people made, and it needs to be understood that yeah, like strictly speaking, if you absolutely are you very very attached to the idea of there being extra mental matter, um, you know you you can kind of shoehorn it in there if you must. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't ultimately work. There, it doesn't actually actually work. Like it, it, it doesn't. It all kind of falls apart at higher levels of analysis. But you know, th I just wanted to signpost that. The the, the point though is like, yeah, it, it's exactly. So so we got to be really clear like, when you're talking about you know um, science, th and this is sort of gets back at this and you know, this problem of induction um, that that Storm brought up, which I think is really well taken. You know, when people often talk about 
when you talk about putting knowledge on solid foundations, as though the problem with science were that, um, you know, the, the induction means that, you know, our knowledge is never really absolutely bulletproof um, because it's always kind of, you know, it can always be falsified. This is kind of like popper philosophy of science 101, um, which is fine. I think that's true. It needs to be that that should be emphasized and understood. But you can also take this more, more like radical. I mean, this is, in a sense, this is kind of the Sextus Empiricus or Humean kind of like really radical. It, it even really goes beyond Hume. But but the point is that, yeah, the like Pirho. Yeah. What, what, what are you what are you? really talking about like what what do you what what do you when you're saying you have knowledge like the only knowledge that ever exists really that is completely indubitable is the knowledge of the knowledge in the sense of a of the the contents of your cognition as it is happening in a particular moment instantane you know in this exact moment the present moment they're like well, my mind is doing certain things I, this is what i know really everything else mm. I have a problem with that, and I and then I think it's even you're it, it, there's an even the, the state you're in is even more diminished because you know okay, classic here, you're not aware of something in the future uh, because things in the future are not here yet. Uh, you're not aware of something in the past because the past is already gone. You're not aware of things in the present uh, because it takes cognition takes time. Light takes time to travel. There, it, it's a it's a process that doesn't happen momentarily right the process of cognition is an ongoing temporal thing and because you know i look over and i see an orange i'm never seeing the orange in the present moment i am seeing my cognition of the orange that is slightly delayed uh at least by the speed of light so it's even more diminished in that we don't have access to any time at all well aside from the the the, the question of like uh you know, functionally, how does it work? There's also the, the related question of what is looking at what? This is, I really liked the, the to, to bring it back yet again, Dharmakirti, the von Neumann quote you gave. Because another thing that that's getting at is like, it, the system is looking at itself. Like there's no way to get the observer out of the system, right? Um, w without losing all the data. So in order to even have a thought that the, the thinker has to be a part of the thought and to bring in uh to, to bring it down about four levels uh from like the phd level down to like the uh, undergrad sophomore level my guy alan watts um has a very cute but insightful way of putting it that we often think of ourselves as uh, human beings as sort of accidents and then consciousness is a sort of accident that happened as a result of i don't know evolution or whatever because we have brains but if you want to take all religion and philosophy out of it and just look at and just talk about the world as a, a you know the whole universe as just a physical process and if we accept the big bang theory and say okay so 10 billion years ago or whatever it was the big bang happened and all these stars formed over time there's gases and clouds and planets formed and then these complicated molecules came along and uh, evolved life and then that eventually evolved into man and that involved in, in, in you were born and you are observing the world how that just means that the big bang is looking at itself right if, if that's your view of the world then that just means that the that when you're looking at an apple that's the big bang looking at the big bang um and i know that's <laughs> it's not the deepest thing it, it, it is actually very deep but it's it's a facile way of putting it but that's 
that's the key. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, the the real the real I mean the real question is, from my perspective, is is um ah, I mean that's actually kind of a meta thing, I guess. What are you even really talking about? We sort of like hinted at this earlier, but sure, since we're on this on this track, why not pursue this line of of, of thinking? When you're talking about an observer or subjectivity, again, from a from a sort of strict perspective, when you when you're talking about like I, you know, you you you, you I think you exactly you say we have this idea of like I have consciousness or I am conscious like or you know of something I am perceiving something. There is a me that is a kind of like the subject or the agent. And there is this other thing that I'm looking at that is like the object or the or whatever. Okay, well, the 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 sort of um, like the next step of the analysis, just classically like Yogacara has four steps. Um, the the sort of the second step is okay. Well, we've established that whatever it is that I am looking at is actually just it, it's it's my own mind it's mind appearing in certain in some way or another but but how is it how is it appearing okay it appears as it seems as though there's this structure of like you know i am in here looking out at the world out there but we know i mean we just figured out or, or realize and, t- and of course typically this is something that we would spend some time kind of meditating on and, and really you know familiarizing ourselves with and and getting used to this idea that um you know that, that, that that's how things are but okay like sort of we're, we're speeding along uh really what's happening is it's my own mind i am i am i am looking out um at, at this stuff but but really what's going on is it's just moment by moment there is a cognition that is happening that seems as though it has a part that is this internal subjective part and it seems as though there's this other part that is this external objective part but where is the line between the two this is i mean von neumann says i actually i think i don't know if i um mentioned this part but in the same passage or elsewhere in the in the in a related passage in the same book he notes you know the line between the observer and the observed is essentially arbitrary i mean this is i guess in part what he was getting at with the bit about like well do you want to calculate to um you know the the mercury do you want to calculate to the molecules of the mercury do you want to calculate to the retina do you want to calculate to the synapses in the brain like where do you want to calculate to it's kind of arbitrary but the point is you know he says well there's always this line between the subject and the object my point is or you know the yogacara tradition's point is that line isn't really real that line is is actually just a form of of um like it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of distortion it's a kind of mistake in your in your mind it's something wrong that with our with our mode of being in the world that is Ig- producing ignorance. this illusion. Yeah, f- ig- fundamentally it's ignorance. It, and it, because, and, and this is the part where you can say like, you know, although I, I agree with you that like, it's kind of cringy to talk about Buddhism as the science of the mind. I also agree with you, Aura, that, you know, it is all definitely true that in the most profound sense, that's really in, in, among other things, what it is. And if you, you know, I, I fully suggest that you try this at home is uh or maybe you know maybe with the guidance of a teacher i don't know but the point is if you really spend time and you spend very careful attention paying very close attention to the structure of your experience moment by moment 
you know, see like, okay, well, I, it feels like I'm in here, but where is that feeling coming from? Is that, is that actually something that's real or is that just some kind of feature of my experience that doesn't actually necessarily correspond to anything in reality? And in reality, what there is, is all there is just an experience that's happening in the moment in an instantaneous present where you know, it, it's all kind of, it's all happening all at once, and there is no real dividing line between the subject and the object. It's just all there, all at once. And and you Go. can examine this, and you will see that this d- duality of subject and object is not really real. Go even further. I mean, look, there you are. And if you don't make up stuff and imbue it with a sense of reality and attach to it and believe in it, then there you have it. I mean, really... It's just as it is, and anything you make up about it is going to be off in one way or another. And even if it wasn't, it wouldn't be falsifiable to you anyway. So just stop creating things. Stop creating these attachments. Stop the need to understand, because it's probably impossible anyway. And the fact that you can't tell whether it is or whether it's not might as well mean it's not. So that's it. I mean, things are quiescently as they are in the moment and manifest. The, the pure, beautiful truth is in front of you literally at all times. There is nothing else you could possibly see. And even when you are detached and, and deluded, it's there too. That is a subset of the truth. You have folded it up and it feels like you can't see it, but there's literally nothing else to see. You just, yeah. right now, in this moment, just extinguish all your karma. Right now. It's that easy. Do it. It, it is so, that sorry. easy and it but it, no it's okay but it, it it can sound hard i know to people or or, or it's just like well, but i don't quite get it and you need to yeah, piggy, yeah. Sorry, to piggyback on. on what on what dk said before and and on what storm king just said and to repeat a bit something i said a couple of weeks ago which uh, the cool thing is is that you can you can get like mini versions of this uh, understanding. You can you can see just like Dharmakirti was just saying. You can see how some let's say you're hung up on a particular girl, or there's somebody you're mad at at work, or somebody tweeted something nasty to you, like anything. Uh, in the process of meditation, without even looking directly at that thing, you can all of a sudden be, realize how that's just composed out of various little processes that are running inside of you. And there's absolutely no need for you to attach yourself to that whatsoever. Uh, and that you're on some level purposefully causing yourself that, that, that pain. Uh, th- and that one, one little realization may not lead to total enlightenment right in the moment, although maybe it will, uh, but let's say it doesn't, but then you get a little bit of faith that, okay, these guys know what they're talking about. Not us on this call, I mean, but yeah, no, the, the masters, the, yeah. the yeah, the tradition knows what it's talking about. And and then you can say, all right, well, they also say these other things, which I don't, which I haven't internally realized yet, but you start to gain a little bit of faith. Okay, well, they were right about that. So, and they're similarly saying other things about this other stuff. Maybe I should look into that. And that was when it becomes, it's not a chore. It's not a, a this thing I'm doing because I'm supposed to, because I'm good. I'm being a good, good person, a good Buddhist. No, you're doing it because like, wow, I just found out something really cool. I want to find out some more of this cool stuff. And it makes it, uh, it makes it a joy. I, I don't necessarily have much to add to that. Kagyu, did you have, you've been a little quiet. I don't know if you had thoughts that you wanted to share or. Not with uh, respect to this. It's, uh, it's. <laughs> no, I, I think y'all have covered it probably with a lot more profundity than I could. So. 
Kaku is the secret master of this. <laughs> no, no, no. Because <laughs> he's always saying, oh, no, not me, not me. That's I've how you something. know he actually knows. <laughs> I've got something to close with if y'all are ready for that. Yeah, let's do it. I hope it is what I think it is. It's <laughs> This is the 86th case of the Blue Cliff record by Yuan Wu. Uh, and this is called Yunmen's Kitchen Pantry and the Main Gate. So to start, I'll read the pointer, and then I'll read the case. The pointer. He holds the world fast without the slightest leak. He cuts off the myriad flows without keeping a drop. Open your mouth and you're wrong. Hesitate a thought and you miss it. But tell me, what is the barrier-penetrating eye? To test you, I will cite this case. The case. Yunmen imparted some words to the monks, saying, Everyone has a light. When you look at it, you don't see it. And it's dark and dim. What is everybody's light? The monks were quiet, and so he answered on their behalf. The kitchen pantry and the main gate. He then went on to say, You've got a good thing, but a good thing isn't as good as nothing. <laughs> Where are these from? That is from the Blue Cliff record, which is a okay. compilation of koans um, compiled by a monk named Yuan Wu. And this is from um, the Golden Age of Chan in China. Fantastic. I guess it's hard to hold your um, base your base and your book at the same time, but I was really hoping that you'd finish the koan with I wish I wish I could have, but I accidentally earlier knocked the USB out. <laughs> well we'll we'll edit it in later. We'll make sure to yeah, have yeah. some some, some uh, Seinfeld beats. Yes. Yeah. So uh, with that I wanna thank everyone um, for tuning in. I, I think we should return to this topic um, at some point. Maybe not next week. Um but my, well, it's, my... it's probably going to come up a little bit next week. I would probably, yeah. Maybe. Let, yeah maybe we we were, can... I think we were going to discuss some stuff about like, the larger scale cosmological questions, which is... yeah, we didn't even get get to that um, this I, time. I think so that's maybe... a good thing to get to sometime in the future. Yeah, why don't we why don't we do that another time? But but for next week, we're going to read. Uh, we're going to do a, at least a couple episodes on Nagarjuna. I'm very much uh, looking forward to that. Excited. I hope you all are psyched too. Until then, we will catch you next time. Peace in the Middle East. <laughs>